This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. You left your dishes in the sink again. I'm sorry, honey. That sets an example for the whole family and leaves me cleaning all day. Well, I've been under a lot of pressure at work lately, okay? Here go mom and dad with the big fight again. The dishwasher is two feet away. It can't possibly add that much pressure to your day. Would you two please just cut it out? You better be quiet or you're going to get the same treatment. Hey, when I pray to God today, I'm going to ask him what I did to deserve a family like this. Well, some example we are. Well, it's true what they say. Kids' first exposure to love relationships is the marriage of their parents. And they don't miss anything. They understand our words, actions, tone of voice, and even our silence. Okay, so here's the deal. What do you say we rewind that scene, see if we can do a little better a second time around? Okay. All right. You left your dishes in the sink again. I'm sorry, honey. That sets an example for the whole family and leaves me cleaning all day. Well, I have been under a lot of pressure at work. Here go mom and dad with the big fight again. The dishwasher is two feet away. It can't possibly add that much pressure to your day. Would you two please just cut it out? You better be quiet or you're going to get the same treatment. No. When I pray to God today, I'm going to ask him what I did to deserve a family like this. Good morning. How are you guys doing today? Doing okay. All right. It's early still, I understand. Uh, my name's Kevin. I'm part of the pastoral team here. And Ron came to me about a month ago, and he said, I'm going to preach a sermon to husbands and fathers, and then a sermon to wives and mothers, and then I'm going to leave the country, and I'd like you to take over. <laughs> I said, that's a good idea. You probably should. Um, so we are. We're talking about marriage this morning, and being married for two years, uh, I am both excited about marriage and humbled by the fact that you've allowed me to speak to you today. I was thinking about the idea of marriage. And when we think about marriage, we think about two people coming together. And I think marriage is about that. It's this beautiful thing where two people come and commit themselves. And yet, marriage is about something much, much deeper than just two people. You see, when God talks about his relationship to us, oftentimes he uses this picture of marriage. He talks about people as a bride and Jesus as this groom and this intimate coming together. And so when we think about marriage, yeah, it's about two of us coming together, but it's about something much deeper. Marriage is a picture of what God wants to do with us, the relationship that he wants to have with each of us. A man came up to Jesus one day. He said, Jesus, what is the most important command? 
this is a huge question because there were like 6,400 commands in the Bible. What's the most important command? How can I bring all 6,400 together into one thing? And Jesus said, that's a great question. He said, the most important command is this, love God with everything that you are. Love God with all of your being, every fiber within you, everything you say, do, and think. Love God. And Jesus said, I'll give you a freebie. The second most important commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. There's something about loving God that I think enables us to love people more completely. And something about that love that we have for people that helps the world experience our love for God. And I would say that marriage is arguably the closest connection that two people have this side of eternity. And so it's the best way to live out that command, to love God and to love another. A quick note uh, to those of us who aren't married in this room. I was not married for 25 years. I've been married for two years, and so most of my life has been in the single realm. And I want to say that this sermon today is not about putting marriage over singleness or singleness over marriage. They're both unique gifts from God I was thinking about some single people. There's Mother Teresa who lived an incredibly passionate life with God, where God used her in many ways. There's a guy named Paul who wrote more than half the books in the New Testament. And Paul said, in his opinion, it's better to be single than to be married because you can serve God more completely when you're single. And then there's Jesus, who to the best of my knowledge uh, was in fact single, regardless of what you saw in that movie a couple years ago. And so I'm not saying that there is this kind of marriage in the church, and then there's singleness. It's not like that. It it is a unique thing, but today we're talking about marriage. So if you're here today and you're single, please don't check out. I think that God has something for you. If you just translate what I'm saying a little bit about marriage, I think you can use it for any relationship, because relationships are about loving God and loving someone else. So I'm going to talk about marriage, but if you're single today, please know that it is not to slight you, and I think that God has something for you. So where should we start when we think about marriage? Well, Jesus started through God in the beginning. In the book of Genesis, right? There's nothing in the world. But there was God. And all of a sudden, God spoke, and then there was something. God spoke this beautiful world into being, and God put water in this world, and God put plants and animals in this world. And every time God created something in the book of Genesis, uh, we see that God said, wow, that is good. That's really good. And then the Bible says that God created man, and something unique happens. Rather than it just being good, God said it is very good, which is important. Think about the beauty of a sunset. Have you ever sat out and just watched the sun go down and thought to yourself, God, you are so awesome. You are so powerful. I think God would say to us, yeah, yeah, the sunset is good, but have you seen your neighbor? They are very good. Have you seen that person that you're uh, opposed to in almost every way? They are very good. Yeah, the sunset is pretty. Yes, your dog is nice and it licks you and that's fun. And yet, your wife, your husband is very very good. So God does all these things. God creates the world. God creates man. But there's something missing. And in Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 21, we see that there's something missing in the man's life. The man does not have a partner with him. And the Bible says this, 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she is taken from man. Like Bob said, uh, Marie and I got married two years ago uh, this past Tuesday, and so I was reflecting back on our wedding day. And I walked out. My twin brother was standing behind me. All of our friends and family and Maria's friends and family sitting there. And then the music started and Maria came from around the corner. And I lost it. I mean, I cried. Not a single tear, which is acceptable in society today, that I could wipe off. I bawled. I was bawling. My brother's hitting me in the back and laughing. My parents, my mom hands me a Kleenex. It was both embarrassing and very romantic, I hope. At the same time, <laughs> Maria walked down and her first words of this loving partnership were, why are you crying? <laughs> so picture this. This guy wakes up. And he's seen the world before, but all of a sudden he turns and there she is. There she is. And he makes this great declaration. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, uh, this idea of bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, it's this Hebrew poem. It's a way of saying, where I am weak, she is strong, bone of my bone. Where I am uh, strong, she is weak, she's flesh of my flesh. And so this man is saying, there's something about us that forms this great partnership when we come together. My weakness is cared for by her strength. Her weakness is carried by my strength. Together, we become one flesh. Uh, God desires partnership in marriage. He says she shall be called woman because she comes from man. And this isn't a way to set up the man over the woman. Uh, what he's saying is we are from the same stuff. My wife did not come from a snail. My wife did not come from a horse or a cow. Please never tell your wife she came from a horse or a cow. That's a bad idea. We're going to talk about fights a little bit later. That would cause a fight, I guess. No, she didn't come from a horse or a cow. She came from me. We're made of the same stuff, of the same substance. We are unique in the way that we can partner together. God desires partnership in marriage. Let's go on in verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked, and they were unashamed. Three things happen here. One, the man leaves his father and his mother. In the ancient world, family was of extreme importance. Your family protected you. They were your companionship. They were the way that you survived in the world. But when marriage happens, the man leaves his mother and father. It's not that he uh, neglects his family. It's not that he turns his back on his family, but there's this unique bond that forms in marriage where all of a sudden our partner's needs get put before the needs of anyone else in the world. He leaves his mother and father and he is joined to his wife. The author says the two will become one flesh. This is a great picture, isn't it? It's this spiritual, emotional, physical connection that happens in marriage. You see, all of a sudden, these things that were two have become one, and that one cannot become 
two again. We see this when we give birth to children. My wife Maria is due in eight days with our first child. So if she stands up and runs out, God bless you, I will see you next week, I'm gone. Because we're getting real close. But when we have a child, we see kind of the physical representation of this two becoming one. The two that have come together have formed this one new life. And that one cannot be separated back into two. God desires a lifelong bond in marriage. God desires a lifelong bond in marriage. Now, I want to say that even as I talk about the lifelong nature of marriage, there are some of us in here who have gone through divorce. Uh, I want you to know that God doesn't say that to condemn you. Some of you have gone through divorce and it wasn't your choice. You wanted a lifelong bond in marriage. I think that God talks about the lifelong unity of marriage because he knows the pain of divorce. Just like we wouldn't want to see our kids go through a painful thing like that, God does not want to see his children go through a painful thing like divorce. Um, God, I, I believe that God redeems divorce. So if you're here tonight, please don't hear this as a condemnation, but that God wants such good things for you, and divorce can be painful. And the author ends, they were naked and they were unashamed. We live in a society that thrives on telling us we're not good enough. Ad executives, they spend billions of dollars telling us if we just had the right clothes or the right shirt, um, which would be clothes, or the right car, if we had more hair, if we had less hair, we would be good enough. But in and of ourselves, that we aren't good enough. And if we aren't careful, we begin to believe what the world tells us, that we actually aren't good enough by being the men and women that God created to be. But marriage fights against that grain. Marriage is a place where we can come to our partner with all of our imperfections and say, for better or for worse, will you take me? Marriage is a place where we can be vulnerable, where we can be open, where we can be honest with our partner and still be accepted. Marriage is a place where we can say, these are my hopes. These are my dreams. This is what I want in life. And have our partners say, you can do it. I believe in you. Even if the world doesn't believe in you, I believe in you. God desires marriage to be a place of honesty and vulnerability. So Genesis chapter 2 sets up this great picture of marriage. Marriage is a place of intimacy, of honesty, of passion, of vulnerability, of partnership, of a unique bond in the world. But in the very next chapter of Genesis, we see that there's brokenness, that there's pain, that there's destruction. Uh, In the very next chapter, we see a disconnect of the two people from each other. They begin to blame each other for this, for that, for the other. They begin to hide from God. And this brokenness is carried out through the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible talks about how God is redeeming that brokenness. God is bringing it back to wholeness. But we live in a broken world, and that brokenness can infect our marriages. Some of us might be sitting here and not having that type of vulnerable, open, honest, passionate relationship that God wants for our marriages. You might be here today and feel like you're sitting next to an acquaintance rather than the one that God gave to you. But I want to say that God wants to redeem every part of our marriage. God wants to bring back passion, joy, partnership, love. 
God wants good things for you. Um, I want to talk for a few minutes about one of the biggest things that can break apart oneness in marriage. Uh, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, and this is part of a bigger teaching in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 that Jesus is telling people what it means to live a full life, a passionate life. And he usually starts out by saying, don't do this, but do this. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus says, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be guilty or liable to the court. He says, but I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. What Jesus is doing here is he's, um, he's teaching in a way that the, the rabbis or the teachers of his day would often do. They'd say, you've heard that the ancients were told something, but I want to tell you the heart of what that really means. You've heard that anyone who commits murder is liable to the court, and the court was this group of 23 Jewish guys, and they'd oversee any capital case. So anytime you're accused of something that you could be put to death for, you'd go before the court. So going before the court means that you might lose your life. Anyone who commits murder is liable to the court. And I'm assuming that most of us in here have not committed murder. Is that a fair assumption? Okay, good. I want to affirm that in you. Uh, Don't commit murder, please. Uh, It's just not a good thing for anyone. But he goes way deeper than murder. Jesus says if anyone is angry with his brother... In this context, if anyone is angry with their spouse, they're close to death. Anger can come in all sorts of forms. It can be small, nothing more than annoyance with something that our spouse does. Or it can be big in the form of rage, violence, screaming. I remember about six months into our marriage, uh, I was home from, from work. Mary and I both came home at the same time from work. and We started to cook dinner together. So I grabbed an onion and I started to cut the onion And I teared up, but for different reasons than before on our wedding day. This was more of a chemical reaction than an emotional response. I'm cutting the onion, and it's getting everywhere. Maria says, you know what? You can cut the onion this way, and it'd be better. What she was saying was, if you try cutting the onion in this particular way, it will be easier for you. What I heard was, you are not any good at anything that you do. You don't even know how to cut an onion. So I just kept on cutting it my way because that seemed like the best idea. And onion is going everywhere. So finally she tries again. You know, if you cut it this way, it will be easier. Frustration began to build up in me. And like any good pastor would do, I put the knife down. I said, fine, you cut the onion. And I stormed away. And I sat down in front of the television. You laugh, and yet I know that I'm not the only one. In all honesty, you see, anger can rob our marriage of life because it takes our partner, this person who we're supposed to be one with, vulnerable, open with, and it turns them into our enemy. It takes that oneness that God wants for us and it puts a wedge right in the middle of it. All of a sudden, Maria, my partner, the one that God has given me to share life with, to be vulnerable and open with, all of a sudden I begin to view her as my enemy, as someone who I am against rather than someone who I am for. Anger can rob our marriage of life. Even something small like frustration over an onion can begin to rob our marriage of the oneness that God called us to. 
And then right in the middle of verse 22, Jesus switches mode from this inward feeling of anger and frustration, frustration to the outward response that we have. He says, whoever shall say to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever shall say to his brother, you fool, shall be guilty enough even to go into the fiery hell. Watch out, it's hot. Jesus' words are hot, both metaphorically and physically. That was a joke. You can laugh, but you don't have to. I'm not going to use that in the next sermon. Um, That's why they give us two. So he sets up these two things. He says, whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, and whoever says to his brother, you fool. And these are two separate words in the Greek language, and they have two separate contexts, two separate meanings. You good for nothing is the word raka. And raka has to do with outward appearance. With, with putting someone down based on what you can see in their life. Um, wow, you've gained a few pounds since we got married. You're not, or, or in my case, wow, you've lost about 100 or 200 hairs since we got married. What's happening there, right? Um, I don't like the dress you're wearing. I don't like the shoes. What's with your makeup? It, it's little things. It can come in the form of sarcasm. It can come in the form of jokes. It comes in the form of passive-aggressive comments. It's small. Raka is small because oftentimes anger begins with frustration, and frustration manifests itself in small ways, little things that we say to our spouse. But Jesus says, when you say, you good for nothing, when you say, Raka, when you start putting down your spouse, just based on little things that you see, you're dividing your marriage. You're bringing death into your marriage. And then he says, if anyone says you fool, which is the Greek word morose, which is where we get the English word moron. Uh, it's not a great translation because morose, it, it doesn't have to do with the observable things. It has to do with the inward things. Telling our spouse, uh, why can't you be more like so-and-so? Saying things like, you're not the man that I married. You're not the woman that I fell in love with. Uh, starting to attack our partner's character. Jesus says the minute we cross this line, any oneness that we had in our marriage is split. Any vulnerability that we had in our marriage is destroyed. All of a sudden, that person who is our partner becomes our enemy. There's more to separating than getting a divorce. Separating can begin the minute we stop loving our partner the minute we stop trying to care for them, the minute we start to say things that would split our marriage. So Jesus says, anyone with anger in their heart, you're walking a fine line. Be careful. But what do we do if we find ourselves here? So that's what we shouldn't do. But Jesus then goes on to say, this is what you should do. In verses 23 and 24, he says this, Therefore, if you're presenting an offering at the altar, or if you're giving a gift to God at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, that your spouse has something against you, leave your offering before the altar. Go first and be reconciled. Seek forgiveness. Offer forgiveness to your brother. Then come and present your offering. This is a huge statement that Jesus says because the ancient world revolved around this temple that was in a city called Jerusalem. And so Jews would travel from all over the ancient world to Jerusalem to present their gifts at the altar before God. This journey could be a multiple week long journey. You'd have to leave everything behind. You'd have to stop farming. You'd have to stop 
uh, working whatever trade you were in and leave everything to travel for weeks to come and give your gift. But Jews did it because they wanted to show their devotion to God. But Jesus says if you've traveled for weeks to worship God and then you realize that your spouse has something against you, don't continue on in your worship. Go and be reconciled to your spouse. Seek forgiveness, offer forgiveness to your spouse. And this hit me. I don't know how many times I've come to church and had a little disagreement with Maria right before. But we put on our happy face. We try to walk into church. We try to worship. And about halfway through worship, I turn to her and I say, you know what? I'm a jerk. I'm sorry. And I need to get some water. <laughs> and she says, I forgive you. Go get some water. <laughs> no, I just want to say that. <coughs> we can't miss the power of this statement. Jesus says your worship to me is tied in with your relationship to your spouse. If you're not forgiving, seeking forgiveness, offering forgiveness, then you're going to miss what I have for you. But if you seek forgiveness, you will experience the fullness that I have for you. So when we hurt our spouse, we need to do a few things. One, we need to apologize and ask for forgiveness. And two, we need to look for ways to make things right. I know what you're thinking. This sounds elementary. We tell our kids, our two or three-year-olds, you need to apologize. You need to ask for forgiveness. You need to give the toy back. And yet, when we get into our marriage, sometimes we miss it. I think if we did this in our marriages, it would revolutionize the oneness that God wants for us. Think about it. You're in a fight with your spouse, and rather than thinking through all the ways that they're wrong and I'm right, we began to think through, what is my part in this argument? What can I go and apologize for? Not even thinking, what do they need to apologize for? That's their job. That's their journey with God. But what can I apologize for? How can I make things right? Or maybe you're like Maria, and you didn't do anything wrong. Maybe you get to the end and you realize, I don't have to apologize. I haven't done anything wrong. But then what you can do is, you can go to the person and try to be as gracious as you can to offer forgiveness. Try to come in a humble way that doesn't just smash our partner, but that loves our partner. Apologize, ask for forgiveness, look for ways to make things right. <coughs> Maybe for you, that means going to your wife and your kids and apologizing because anytime you get in a disagreement, it turns into a yelling match and your house has become an unsafe place for your family. I think sometimes we forget that the way that we interact as a married couple influences our kids. But they watch everything. They hear everything. They're taking their cues from us. What should we do when we get angry? They think, what should I do when I'm frustrated? Do I yell? Do I scream? Do I shut down and turn away? Or do I deal with it? Do I communicate? Our kids are going to take these patterns into their friendships, into their dating relationships, and ultimately into their marriage. And so as a married couple, it's our responsibility to live this out every day because our kids see it and it does affect them. So maybe you go and you apologize and then you have to take the next step. And this is the hard one, I think, oftentimes. What can I do to make it right? Maybe it means learning new ways to communicate when you're angry that aren't destructive that don't make your home an unsafe place. Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. Maybe when you get frustrated, you don't yell and scream. You just shut down. You turn on a little uh, home and gardening or a football game. You grab a beer. 
you shut down, you tune your wife out, you tune your husband out. All of a sudden, that oneness has become two people who happen to be living together and sleeping in the same bed. I even have heard um, that sometimes we use church for this. I'm going to go and serve at church eight nights a week so that I don't have to be around my spouse because I can't stand to deal with them. God says, before you come to serve me, be reconciled to your spouse. Maybe it means going to them and apologizing and doing the hard work of communicating rather than shutting down. I want to give just a few ideas for next steps. If you're looking for ways uh, to kind of live this out in your life, they're going to be up here on the screen. The first one is pray. You can ask God, how can I deepen my intimacy with my partner? Because marriage is not something that we put together. It's something that God has put together from the beginning of time. And God wants wholeness in our marriages. So we pray and we ask God for intimacy. We ask God for healing. We ask God to work and to move because God promises that God will. Or maybe you want to check out Weekend to Remember. It's the conference that's coming up November 14th to the 16th. It's a great place, and I've talked to some friends who have gone, and from anyone who is just kind of brand new in their marriage and loving it, to people who are at the very end of their marriage, wondering if they can stick together. This is a great conference. There are around 1,000 people there, so you're not going to have people staring at you. We're all there for the same reason, to reconnect with our spouse, to learn how to love them better. Maybe it's time to check out Weekend to Remember. Or maybe you want to join a marriage life group. Uh, Marie and I love our marriage life group. It's a great place to come together with other couples, talk about what's going on in marriage, to pray together, to study the Bible, to see what God would say to us as a couple, to learn about passion and purpose in our lives. Maybe for you, it'd be something like going to counseling, to learn how to communicate better. I know there's a stigma around counseling in the Christian world, but counseling is a great gift. God gave us brothers and sisters who can help us learn how to communicate in healthy ways. Why not use them? If you want to connect with a counselor, give me a call at the office or talk to Bob Talk to Ron. We know some folks who we'd love to hook you up with. <clears throat> when we work hard at reconciling, our kids will see love at work. They will see forgiveness at work. Our kids will learn how to deal with their anger as we learn how to deal with our anger. Not only that, but the world around us will begin to see our marriage and think there must be something different about you. All of a sudden, as we love God and love our spouse, the world around us says, wow, there must be a God because he's bringing those two people together. Marie and I were flying home from Wisconsin this last summer, and we were talking about the baby coming. Uh, We just had this great conversation for about two hours about how she was feeling, how I was feeling, what was going on. At the end of that, we're walking out to the baggage claim, and this woman stops us, and she goes, hey, are you guys Christians? And I just, I turned around um, tried to figure out someone had drawn a cross on my forehead when I was asleep, or if there was like a what would Jesus do sticker something that I had to get off. I couldn't figure out what it was. And I said, well, yeah, we are Christians. Why do you ask? She said, well, I heard, I was sitting a few rows behind you. I heard the way you guys were talking to each other. And I thought, you must be Christians. Man, I got to tell you, I left on cloud nine. This woman had seen the way that a partnership could be with God. And she experienced God through that. When Jesus is asked, what's the greatest command? He says, love God with everything that you are, with every fiber in your being, and love your neighbor as yourself. When it comes to marriage, I believe that when we we love God more completely, God enables us to love our neighbor more fully. 
to love our spouse more fully. When we love our spouse more fully, I believe that God is seen in our marriage by our kids, by our friends, by our family, by our coworkers. So I invite you today, own everything that God has for your marriage. Not just part of it. Don't settle for living with someone. Own joy, passion, intimacy, oneness, connection, vulnerability. Own it because God has given it to you as a gift in your marriage. This week, for all you married folks, I invite you, take just a half hour together alone when the kids are sleeping. Talk about some joys in marriage. What has God been doing in your marriage that's really brought joy? Talk about any areas that you want to grow together as a couple. Pray together that God would bring those areas to fruit. I also invite you to do the hard work of asking your spouse if you've done anything to hurt them. Uh, That could be longer than a half-hour conversation, but it's probably going to be worth it. So take some time to be one, because that's what God is offering to you. Join me, let's pray. God, I do thank you for the gift of marriage, the gift of our spouses, um, the way that you have created them and said, look at her, look at him. They are so very good. I thank you that you've allowed us to share life together, to be open and vulnerable and honest, to experience passion with our spouse. Would you help us to live that fully, both today, this week, this month, and this year, that we would experience you, that our kids would experience you more fully, that our friends, neighbors, and coworkers would experience you more fully, because we are loving you and loving them as we would love ourselves. Thank you, God. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.